Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The House Judiciary Committee escalating its probe into the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago. They want the Justice Department to turn over unredacted documents related to their criminal investigation. Speaker Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are forging ahead with plans to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. We hear from Oversight Committee members on Capitol Hill. One more Republican running for president. What are his chances of winning? We hear from a political expert on why so many Republicans are throwing their hat in the ring. A second flight of illegal immigrants arrives in California. And the Golden State's governor again suggests that Florida is behind it. Over in Arizona, Governor Katie Hobbs put pen to paper Monday and vetoed a number of bills. One of them involved sexually explicit material. Disaster strikes as a major dam crumbles in Ukraine, causing widespread flooding for communities. But could the dam's sudden collapse be part of a larger military strategy? And a shocking announcement in golf as rival leagues suddenly go from suing each other in court to merging as one on the field. We begin with breaking news out of Washington related to the Trump classified documents probe. Representative Jim Jordan is demanding materials from the DOJ. The House Judiciary Chairman sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland today. He said the committee is still investigating the FBI's raid on the former president's Florida home and that Garland hasn't provided materials he previously requested. Last August, FBI agents searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in connection with 15 boxes of documents from his time in the White House. Some of the boxes contain documents with classified markings, which Trump has said he declassified. Later, Garland appointed Jack Smith as special counsel to investigate Trump's handling and storage of the documents. Jordan is asking for an unredacted copy of the memo that outlines the scope of Smith's investigation. The request comes as Smith has started calling witnesses to a federal grand jury in Miami. And Trump also responded on Truth Social, writing, quote, The Marxists and fascists in the DOJ and FBI are going after me at a level and speed never seen before in our country, and I did nothing wrong. He added that President Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence did not face consequences in their classified document cases. In a separate post, Trump said the investigation is a form of election interference by the DOJ and those above them. Meanwhile, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans are forging ahead with a contempt charge against FBI Director Christopher Wray. GOP lawmakers say Wray is shielding documents related to an alleged Biden family bribery scheme. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. So the document we're talking about is in the FBI's possession. It alleges that President Biden, when he served as vice president, received millions of dollars from a foreign national to influence policy decisions. Now, FBI Director Christopher Wray did allow those top members on the Oversight Committee, that is Chairman James Comer and ranking Democrat member Jamie Raskin, to view that document behind closed doors. But some GOP lawmakers who are on the Oversight Committee tell me they're still not satisfied. If the information's credible, why haven't they pursued it? If they have pursued it, where is the outcome of that information? 
There's a lot of questions here. This is not the FBI's information. It's not Christopher Ray's information. The information belongs to the American people. Uh, two people yesterday, Chairman Comer and Ranking Member Raskin, were able to view the documents, but not the rest of the committee, and the information was also redacted. Originally, the FBI said the document, they wouldn't confirm or deny the existence of the document, then all of a sudden, out of thin air, it appears. And Ranking Member Raskin says that the issue is not worth digging into because the FBI, in its initial investigation, found no reason to escalate it from an assessment to a so-called preliminary investigation. Raskin describing the document as confidential human and source reporting a conversation with someone else, calling it secondhand hearsay. Still, House Oversight Committee members, supported by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, are preparing to hold a hearing to hold Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress this Thursday. Here's how Republicans and Democrats are responding to this effort. I, I think he's certainly walked himself into that situation by not being straight. Seemingly political efforts to um, highlight the uh, the, the president um, and put him in a negative light. That's all this is about. Look, we've got to reassert our authority here. I mean, we have, you know, this is not the inmates running the asylum here. We are the ones who are in charge and they need to understand that. And one more detail I will point out on this is a tweet by freshman Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna, who does sit on the oversight committee. She wrote that the FBI is afraid their informant will be killed if unmasked based on the info he has brought forward about the Biden family. The FBI director will face those contempt charges later this week, although the agency has said they've tried to cooperate with Congress, calling this escalation unwarranted. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Over at the White House, President Biden convenes his cabinet for the first time in half a year. It also comes at an important time amid recent political developments. Hintedee's Iris Tao has more. And President Biden today held its first cabinet meeting since January. It's also the first one since he announced his re-election campaign, and it comes just days after Congress was able to pass a bill to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Here's what President Biden said. Uh, this could have been the week that uh, catastrophic, catastrophic default, default happened, putting millions of people's jobs in jeopardy. But uh, instead, we prevented the default, and uh, our historic recovery continues. And as the meeting started, President Biden sought to underscore what he calls his legislative and economic accomplishments. And an important message he's trying to convey here is that he wants to finish the job, which is exactly what he said in his re-election campaign video and finish the job because we're not finished yet. We have more to do. But the meeting also comes as the nation remains largely skeptical of Biden's handling of the economy, with a recent poll by the Associated Press showing that only one-third of the country approve of it. But the White House is trying to expand its outreach efforts on this front. It launched a website today to showcase President Biden's investments in various parts of the country. And it's also planning for cabinet officials to tour around the country in July to highlight what President Biden has done on the economy. Reporting from the White House, Ari how went TD News. Yet another Republican joining the 2024 presidential race. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, RFK Jr. is making waves. NTD's Arian Pazdar spoke with a political analyst. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is launching his second presidential campaign. He filed the official paperwork with the FEC on Tuesday. There are now more than 10 Republican hopefuls for the presidential race. However, former President Trump has a clear lead in the polls, followed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 
we have so many Republicans now running. Do you think there's a real chance that anyone besides DeSantis or Trump will win the nomination? Yes, but very, very slim. <laughs> you know, you said real chance. I actually probably not. Roger Simon is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter and editor-at-large for the Epoch Times. He says many are not actually running to become president, but to be nominated as vice president alongside Trump or to secure a cabinet post. That's why also, incidentally, you find more of them will be presently attacking DeSantis because DeSantis's numbers are down enough that it's looking as if Trump will waltz in there. Meanwhile, Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is polling at around 20%, some numbers show. Politico reported on Tuesday that sources from within the Biden administration are hoping the media will turn voters against Kennedy. A Democratic strategist told the outlet that once the press reports on Kennedy, voters will realize he's running in the wrong party. Simon says the media often reports this way. I think what's being reported is a, a problem. And a new poll by News Nation published on Tuesday shows that half of Americans would consider voting for a third-party president. That's if Biden and Trump get the nominations. What do you make of that poll saying that so many people would consider voting for a third-party candidate? Well, I, I think <laughs> it's hard not to empathize. He says both parties have been rather extreme recently, while at the same time often letting their voters down. However, he says people often say these things to pollsters, but when election day comes... They'll change their views and come home to the Republicans and the Democrats. He added that the primaries and the general elections are still far away, and much could change in the meantime. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is set to officially announce his presidential campaign tonight at a New Hampshire town hall. NTD will livestream the event at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Over in California, a flight carrying illegal immigrants landed in Sacramento unannounced. And the Golden State is pointing the finger at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, accusing him of kidnapping. NTD's Sam Wong has the story. An investigation is underway. California officials are looking into whether Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was behind the arrival of illegal immigrants in Sacramento. The group of around 20 were reportedly picked up at the Texas border on Monday and boarded a private jet en route to California. California Attorney General Rob Bonta alleges that they were flown under false pretenses. The incident came just a few days after a similar flight arrived in the city, which dropped off 16 illegal immigrants from Colombia and Venezuela. The California AG said that the first group was transported from Texas to New Mexico and eventually brought to a Catholic church in Sacramento. Paperwork in their possession indicated the trip to California was handled by a Florida-based contractor. Following the arrival, California Governor Gavin Newsom lashed out at DeSantis in a tweet, calling him a small, pathetic man, and suggested that California press kidnapping charges. NTD reached out to DeSantis's office regarding the accusation, but didn't hear back by airtime. Local officials and faith-based groups in Sacramento are scrambling to find housing and food to accommodate the unexpected influx. We had no idea that they were coming, but my staff quickly found uh, uh, some of our, our um, community folks who, um, who work with the immigrant community. and. The buses and planes of illegal immigrants have increased partisan tension on immigration. Last year, the state of Florida flew 49 Venezuelan immigrants from San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Vineyard, a resort island in Massachusetts. And in that same year, DeSantis signed a budget that allows Florida to transfer illegal immigrants out of his state. 
As the illegal immigrants arrived in California, a Texas sheriff's office announced Monday it has recommended criminal charges over the two flights to Martha's Vineyards last year. Sam Wong, NTD News. And in Arizona, Governor Katie Hobbs on Monday vetoed a Senate bill aimed at stopping the filming of pornography in classrooms. Hobbs said the bill was a veiled effort to ban books. NTD's Arlene Richards has more details. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs rejected a number of legislative measures on Monday. One of them was aimed at banning the practice of filming pornography in classrooms. State Senator Jake Hoffman introduced the bill after this happened. It was reported that two teachers were using public school facilities to film pornography that they were then posting and profiting from. The bill would prohibit state and local offices from exposing minors to sexually explicit material. It specifically prohibits the use of local or state government property for filming such material. Hoffman had amended the bill in mid-February. The amendment expanded the prohibitions to include the state, a state agency, or a city, town, county, or political subdivision. At a February 16 hearing, Democratic Senator Priya Sundarishan took issue with the expansion. Why doesn't the bill kind of very specifically limit itself to that circumstance? Because um, I'm reading this and I'm, I'm wondering, does this include a library that has a book with any sexual situation, even if it was in an adult section, just because a child could potentially find it on the shelf? In a letter vetoing the bill, Hobbs said it was written in such a vague manner that it serves as little more than a thinly veiled effort to ban books. The Arizona Education Association applauded the veto, saying in a statement that every student in Arizona, no matter who they are or what they look like, deserves the opportunity to engage with classic works of literature and art. According to the statement, teachers would have needed written parental permission in order to use some classic books, and the bill would have made it a felony if they didn't get the consent. Hoffman said that the bill did include libraries, and here's why. This is one of those situations where we don't want to, at least, you know, I don't want to, I would assume that you don't as well, but I don't want uh, minors in the state of Arizona being exposed to sexually explicit materials as defined by our criminal code. Hobbs has vetoed more than 100 bills since January. Other bills vetoed on Monday include prohibiting the state treasurer from investing in companies that donate to Planned Parenthood and banning ranked choice voting or any form of balloting that has multiple stages of counting. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Coming up, should criminal records be wiped clean? As New York nears a deal on Clean Slate Act, we asked New Yorkers and experts what they think. And American Airlines recently had to ground over 150 planes due to a severe shortage of pilots. A commercial airline pilot speaks with us about the struggles the industry is facing. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Welcome back. The Clean Slate Act could impact the criminal records of millions of New Yorkers. Our reporter hit the streets of Manhattan to gather public opinion on this controversial bill. NTD Subiemba has the details. I'm out here on the streets of New York City where the Clean Slate Act is gathering mixed opinions. Lawmakers are close to reaching a deal that will automatically clear a New Yorker's conviction record. How do people of New York City feel about this? Let's hear directly from them. It 
will be very diff different from between crime and violation. The public has a right to know that you're dealing with a sociopath that can hurt you or God forbid your family. So for that, I say keep it on the record. Uh, I believe everybody should have a second chance, but I think that you might have to decide that on a case-by-case -case basis. If, if it's a severe, serious crime, like child molesters and things of that nature, I, don't, I really don't believe, in my own opinion, I don't believe they deserve a second chance. Robert Patillo, a Democratic strategist, thinks it's a measure long overdue. How will the rights and well-being of victims be protected under this Clean Slate Act? When it comes to victims, one, this does not apply to sex crimes. So if you are a rapist or a child molester, um, this would not apply to you. It's not as if we're simply saying that what you did in the past does not matter going forward. We just simply want to make sure that for people who have been rehabilitated, for people who are trying to restart their lives, for people who had um, youthful indiscretions, that we're not simply putting this baggage on them for the rest of their lives. Some are concerned about serious offenses, uh, such as murder being eligible for this ceiling. How can we ensure that public safety is not compromised? You put safeguards in place to ensure that the individuals involved, uh, of course, have gone through counseling, have paid, repaid their debts to society, uh, that they uh, have a plan in place where they will have stable housing, where they'll have employment, uh, and where they'll be checking in with the state to ensure that they are uh, not a continuing threat to society. On the other hand, Jason Johnson, a former law enforcement officer, thinks all serious offenses should be excluded from the bill. Well, first of all, I think it's a faulty premise that people with criminal records cannot be employed. Um, just because you have a, a criminal history doesn't necessarily mean that all sorts of opportunities should be off the table. Many, many, many employers are willing to accept people with criminal records. Secondly, I would say that people with very serious convictions shouldn't, shouldn't be subject to this clean slate. People who've committed murders and robberies and, and, and rapes and other many other types of serious offenses should either be excluded entirely from the coverage of this or the circumstances under which those records are quote unquote sealed um, should be, you know, there should be a much longer passage of time and other things that have to happen before people are allowed to have their criminal records sealed. The Clean Slate Act remains a topic of intense debate. It is estimated that an agreement will be reached before the legislative session ends on June 8th. Sue Biamba, NTD News. Over in California, some lawmakers are pushing a bill that would ban employers from requiring store employees to confront shoplifters. NTD's David Lamb reports. Senate Bill 553, submitted by State Senator Dave Cortese, was passed by the State Senate. Cortese hopes the law can prevent workplace violence and keep employees safe. It would also prohibit employers from requiring workers to confront suspected active shoplifters. Senator Cortese said, with workplace violence on the rise, stronger protections are needed to help workers feel safe. Now, we spoke to some Californians and they have differing views on this issue. There probably should be a bill. Um, I think that's probably already the, the status quo of like, um, just for safety and insurance purposes, that's already kind of like what's happening. I have a fiance who's a store manager and he cannot confront them. And I feel like if they're not confronted, they it keeps going you know the problem kind of keeps escalating i do think it could be dangerous so i do think there should be some restrictions and some boundaries that should be met 
Theft in California have been making headlines as retail stores have shut down in the past few years due to crime. It's a hard situation to to deal with just because just because of that. They're they're people in bad situations and uh, probably stressed out, like trying to, to to live day to day. And it's a uh, it's just a tough situation uh, for businesses and for the people in those situations. So it's kind of a confrontation that's inevitable, I guess. But um, you know, uh, yeah, they should just be hiring security professionals. Um, those people are trained to deal with these kind of situations. But ultimately, I feel like they should be apprehended because if you let them get away with it, it's almost like letting a kid keep stealing candy, you know, not holding them responsible. And stores are losing, businesses are losing, small businesses are losing. And if nothing's being done, I mean, we can report it to the police, but how many of these police reports, you know, kind of get written down? SB 553 requires employers to maintain a violent incident log and provide active shooter and shoplifter training. The bill is now headed to the state assembly. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Turning now to business news, the SEC is suing Coinbase, the largest crypto exchange in the U.S. This comes right after it sued Binance, the world's biggest crypto exchange, just yesterday. What's the main charge? Here's more. The SEC is suing Coinbase, the second major lawsuit against a cryptocurrency exchange in just two days. The agency sued Binance a day earlier. SEC Chair Gary Gensler says Coinbase illegally operated as a securities exchange without registering with the SEC. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong responded that there is no clear rulebook about crypto. He says the SEC is taking a regulation-by-enforcement approach that's harming America. SEC Chair Gensler addressed this complaint on CNBC. There's been clarity for years. The investing public has the benefit of the U.S. securities laws. Crypto should be no different. And these platforms, these intermediaries, uh, need to come into compliance and protect the investing public. The Coinbase CEO argues that there's no path to come in and register. He says he even repeatedly tried to. He also says the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission have made conflicting statements on what is a security and what is a commodity. You're dealing with complex digital asset products, and the truth is that the legal and regulatory framework that exists today, it isn't well shaped in order to both support innovation and development of the industry, as well as to balance that with consumer protection and market integrity. Gabrielle Coos is the CEO of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. She formerly worked at the World Bank. Coos believes cryptocurrencies are new technology that aren't regulated well by old securities laws. And as a result of Gensler's regulation through enforcement, she's seen hundreds of crypto firms leave America. But even though crypto is a new technology, much of it still functions like an old-fashioned security. The reality of how it's being used by the average person and the average investor on a day-to-day -day basis is they want to go onto Coinbase, they want to invest $1,000 into one of the various cryptos, whether that's Solana or Ethereum, and they're hopeful that the price will go up. John George Aris is a partner at Warren Law Group. He's been working with the SEC on securities-related issues for the past 10 years. Aris says crypto has the potential for more widespread application, but mostly people are just buying it and hoping the price goes up, and therefore they need protection. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Travel season is heating up. Concerns are swirling over a repeat of last year when 52,000 flights were cut from June through August. How's this year shaping up?
Joining us now, Jason Kunish, a U.S. commercial airline pilot. Jason Kunish, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Reports are noting that American Airlines had to ground 150 flights. That's due to a pilot shortage. So to begin, why is there this pilot shortage? It's not just the 150 flights, it's 150 aircraft uh, throughout the network. Uh, the pilot shortage has been coming here for years. It started with the wave of retirements uh, after or just prior to COVID, through COVID, and uh, the airlines have been very slow in rebounding in that. It's not so much uh, pilot um, availability, but it's lack of forethought, mostly, I think, on management's part. And it's not just affecting American Airlines, but the industry at whole. That was going to be my next question. Is this industry-wide? And actually, is this just pilots, or is it also affecting other staff? It's affecting staff, not just what we call above or below the wing, those who are in the plane or, or out on the ramp, uh, but also air traffic control. Just the other day, I was flying, and uh, we pulled into a major air, uh, airport on the East Coast, and it took about 45 minutes to get to our gate, not because it was full or occupied by a delayed aircraft, but because they didn't have the airport staff to guide us in, deplane us, refuel us, get the passengers situated, et cetera. But it's also an air traffic control situation as well. Uh, they are completely understaffed. I know one sector in the country this week, in fact, today, is operating at half staff uh, with no supervisors. In fact, some of those half staff individuals are having to fill the role of the supervisor role. Um, and so this is not just at the airlines, it's, it's industry-wide. That sounds like a security issue. Is there any talks of getting more staff then? There is. It's a, it's a budget thing, uh, in my opinion, uh, as far as the, the, the air traffic controllers. They, they've done their studies and they've run it up the pole to the federal government, said we need this staffing, and the federal government says we don't have the money for it. In fact, we're going to cut up to 1,200 jobs uh, over the next period of time here. As far as the airlines go, it takes, as many know, several years to get air, uh, airline pilots up to speed in their training and safety requirements. So this isn't something that's going to be fixed overnight. Additionally, the airport workers, uh, they have sensitive safety jobs, uh, refueling airplanes, et cetera. So it's, this is going to be not something that's fixed overnight, but it's going to be a long time, unfortunately. And on that funding part, is there any reason given for why they're cutting staff instead of giving more or just money issues? I think it's money issues. I think it's also priorities. You know, the, the, the people, the industry experts uh, say to those with purse strings, we need this funding for, for these projects and, and this level of staffing. And the federal government comes back and says, no, in fact, we're going to cut it. You know, we can find $130 billion for Ukraine or, or health care for the workers or for the people coming out of this over the southern border. But we can't fix our infrastructure. There's, I think there's something else going on there. And Jason, how bad is this from your perspective, and how will this affect travelers, especially as we head into the busy summer season? You know, air, the airline industry isn't just about travel. It's about service. Uh, and this is affecting the service that we provide as a whole, as an industry, to the consumer, the, the everyday traveler, whether you're going to go see grandma or go seal a deal on a golf course somewhere. It's This affects everybody. Um, and 
especially during this holiday, this not holiday, but, but summer peak travel, when everyone's off from school to taking their holidays, people are going to be st stuck in airports. It's t it's a double fold here. Well, number one, you've got the airline staffing issue, but even though the airline management can say we're going to uh, staff at a certain a certain rate, when air traffic control can't handle that need and and shut down airspace for long periods of time because of staffing, it's a double whammy that's really going to snowball. And given all that's at stake here, what are the solutions going forward? I think more awareness. I think more people talking about this um, and and more uh, vocal advocacy on the staff level. You know, the airlines uh, personnel, they've got their unions, the air traffic control, they have their unions, and they're the, really the experts on the ground that know uh, what the issues are, not the people in the back rooms with the, you know, with the pen. Jason Kunish, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, disaster strikes as a major dam crumbles in Ukraine, causing widespread flooding in communities. But could the dam's sudden collapse be part of a larger military strategy? Find out more when we return. Welcome back. A major dam in southern Ukraine has collapsed, triggering widespread flooding and a race to evacuate residents. Ukraine and Russia are accusing each other of the destruction. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. The Ukrainian police have been evacuating residents from the flooded region of Kherson in southern Ukraine. This comes after a major dam collapsed on Tuesday, flooding villages, endangering crops and threatening drinking water supplies. Animals in the area, such as dogs and even a beaver, were also affected by the sudden flooding. Satellite images show pictures of the dam before and after the destruction. So how did the dam collapse? Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky blames Russia. Tonight they blew up the dam of the Kakova hydroelectric power station. The explosion happened at 3.50 a.m. It was an absolutely deliberate planned explosion. On the other hand, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu blames Ukraine. Aiming to prevent the offensive operations by the Russian army on this section of the front line, the Kyiv regime committed an act of sabotage, or rather a terrorist act. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said there have likely been many deaths because of the flooding, but he could not provide any numbers. We've seen the reports that Russia was responsible for the explosion at the dam. We're doing the best we can to assess those reports, and we are working with the Ukrainians to gather more information. But we cannot say conclusively what happened at this point. But could there be some sort of military strategy behind the dam's sudden collapse? Postdoctoral researcher at the War Studies Department of King's College London gave this analysis. For Russians, the reason to do it would have been to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive, obviously and to, to create swamps so the Ukrainians wouldn't be able to use their mechanized infantry, for instance. And the former deputy head of the Polish military counterintelligence service said no heavy equipment will be able to cross through that area anytime soon. At least a month, uh, it excludes this uh, area terrain uh, of use of heavy equipment like tanks or APCs or heavy armored vehicles. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, it uh, covers for Ukrainian safety on, a, on this flank because uh, during expected offensive of Ukrainian army, Russians won't be able to operate on this direction. U.S. and Western officials see signs that Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive against Russia is beginning, according to a NATO official. And they have noted a substantial increase in fighting in eastern Ukraine over the last 48 hours. Jason Perry, NTD News. Other threats of war, this time not from Russia. China's defense minister's recent remarks raising some eyebrows. Here to help break it down for us is retired Army colonel and author of The Nation Will Follow, John Mills. John Mills, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Always an honor to be on the show with you. Recently, there's some near misses with China. There's the warships, the aircraft, and there's concerns that misunderstandings could lead to war. And now we have China's defense minister, Li Chenfu, saying that China will attack without any hesitation any nation that tries to separate it from Taiwan. What does that mean in terms of the U.S.'s pledge to help Taiwan defend itself? Well, I think the current administ American administration um, is... I don't think they even realize they are causing a ambiguity by their statements. Uh, right now, China is being crystal clear on what they want. The age of uh, amp uh, strategic ambiguity is over, and it was over a while ago. That only works when you have decisive, overwhelming force. The Chinese know we don't have overwhelming force anymore. So I think it's a dangerous game the Biden team plays when they when they try to be sophisticated and use rote and aged concepts of diplomacy with, with regards to China and Taiwan. Those days are long gone. So the only thing China understands now is a significant military buildup and presence from the US military. That's not what we're getting. The FY23 fiscal year 23 defense budget did go up significantly. However, because of a number of issues, the Department of Defense is showing an inability to properly execute and deploy those funds to build up U.S. capacity and capability. And John, in terms of the strategic ambiguity in the U.S., how should the U.S. be making it less ambiguous? At this point in time, we should be crystal clear on what we want, which is no Chinese military invasion or coercion. And that's what it says in the old Taiwan Relations Act. But the language has been uh, the FY23 NDA essentially supplanted the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, which with much more, we should stop tiptoeing around the topic. And that's what continuously uh, Secretary of Defense Miller, National Security Advisor Sullivan, and Secretary of State Blinken, they're continually tiptoeing around this topic. That will slide us all toward world war. Taiwan is off limits, period. We never use the word independence. We never use the word independence. And Taiwan is off limits from any influence operation from the mainland, period. And John, in terms of actions, what should the U.S. do to best ensure deterrence going forward? We must be clear and demonstrative about military capabilities. Let's, for example, the M1 tank that supposedly that Chi uh, Taiwan has bought, 
and supposedly the lead elements of the approximately 108 to 130 tanks are already in Taiwan. We should be showing those off. Taiwan should be showing those off. We should be doing joint U.S. training, and we should articulate that all we're doing is training the Taiwanese on how to operate the M1 tank. We should be sending U.S. tank teams from U.S. armored units to Taiwan to with full media. And this is what baffles me about the administration. They don't want to give any media to what we're doing in Taiwan as far as building up our training capacity, which we are. No, we should be showing this off to the world. We should be showing we should not be hiding this. Hiding this will, will create an, uh, a situation that will tilt us toward conflict. If we are open about this and say, China, we are training Taiwan, period. We never said independence. And John, in terms of China more broadly, there's a popular argument that China just wants to grow its own prosperity. It doesn't want to be the world leader. What do you make of that? Uh, that is absolute propaganda uh, from uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they have shown they cannot live in, in, in the world without controlling things and without being the, the premier unchallenged power in, in the center of, this, of, of the universe. That, that is the way they are. It is just inescapable, unstoppable, uh, irrefutable. That is how the Chinese Communist Party leads China. They have to be the single unassailable power in the world. And as long as the United States is here, we are in their way. John Mills, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tiffany. Always an honor to be on your show. Hundreds of thousands of French citizens took to the streets today to protest once more against pension reform. Although polls show a majority are against the change, it's unlikely to be canceled at this point. Entities France correspondent David Vives has more from Paris. While French President Emmanuel Macron was in Normandy for a D-Day commemoration, hundreds of thousands of French citizens demonstrated against the nation's pension changes. Between 400,000 and 600,000 likely took to the street. Tensions broke out between demonstrators and police in Paris as protesters set numerous fires in the French capital. The majority of French people disapprove of the pension reform and also of the method used by the government to bypass the parliamentary vote. I still have hope that it can be cancelled one day, because enough people are against it. There's a lot of disappointment as far as we're concerned, we the citizens, a lot of disappointment. Because in the end, the government's actions are legal. That is in line with democracy and the Constitution. But in the spirit of democracy, there's something that doesn't suit us, and we don't feel heard at all. The pension changes include raising the retirement age to 64. It was already approved in March. The government enforced the bill at the time, overriding the parliament majority opposed to it. This week, members of parliament proposed a new bill to cancel raising the retirement age. But the president's parliamentary group might use a constitutional decree to oppose this new bill and cancel its vote. Member of parliament Benjamin Saint-Huile, who co-wrote the bill, says Macron's government refusing all discussion is very bad for democracy. 
Generally speaking, the ability of parliamentarians to propose legislation and amend texts is gradually being stifled. It's true that at this very moment, we're wondering why we're at such a standstill. Even though we understand that, in reality, they don't want to vote in the National Assembly because they know they're in the minority. The French are overwhelmingly opposed to this reform. And in the National Assembly, if we could finally vote, we'd have the opportunity to say so. A recent poll found 71% of French citizens hope this bill will be debated in Parliament. If that's not the case, this will likely be the final chapter of the pension reform. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up in the world of golf, a stunning announcement. Has the sport turned upside down? We'll hear from an expert on why the PGA is merging with the Saudi-funded league. And it's been 79 years since Allied forces landed in Normandy on D-Day. American World War II veterans returned to Normandy for an annual commemoration. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. The PGA golf world was forever altered when rival league Elive Golf entered the scene less than two years ago. Today's shocking merger news ends the bitter rivalry, yet brings plenty of questions. NTD's Dave Martin has more. After more than a year of squabbling, both inside and outside of the legal court, the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's Live Golf League are now merging under one yet-to-be-named umbrella. The stunning announcement also includes the DP World Tour, formerly known as the European Tour. And as part of the deal, lawsuits from all sides will be dropped. In addition, the governor of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund joins the PGA Tour's board of directors as chairman, though the tour still holds a majority stake. James Ward, who is the senior editor for Golf Today, says the move now was about retaining power for the PGA. You got to remember, the majority of the policy board will still be PGA Tour people. They only provided one seat at the table. So it's a question of really leveraging their position. I mean, a lot of this is never going to be confirmed by Monaghan. I mean, he's never going to say that the tour was in jeopardy. Ward says that ultimately the two sides had started a bidding war for players and that the PGA and CEO Jay Monaghan couldn't keep up and likely needed to stop the bleeding while they still had enough players. In response to Liv's seemingly endless bidding, the PGA Tour significantly upped their player payouts from $420 million last year to $560 this year, yet sponsors had to put up with declining talents on the field. Meanwhile, Liv Golf reportedly paid in the hundreds of millions of dollars each to lure high-profile players like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson yet had seen little in the way of returns on their multi-billion dollar investment, as sponsors had little interest in being linked to a regime best known for human rights abuses. Until this had happened, no major sponsor had aligned itself with Live. You don't see Rolex commercials on Live golf events. None of that of the none of the organizations that are associated with golf, the major equipment companies, whatever they were never going to be involved with Live, Dave. That was radioactive to them. And a lot of those companies are publicly traded. Yet to be answered though is when the more than fifty PGA players who joined Live will be able to compete in PGA events. 
In addition, the reaction of those players who stayed loyal to the PGA instead of taking Liv's millions of dollars has yet to be seen. Jay Monahan, meanwhile, told the Associated Press, quote, In the short term, I expect a lot of questions and criticism. In the long run, players who stayed with the PGA Tour will see they benefited in many ways. Reporting by Dave Martin, NTD News. And finally, today marks the 79th anniversary of the landing of Allied forces in Normandy on June 6, 1944, D-Day. American World War II veterans returned to the beaches of Normandy for a special commemorative event. 45 American World War II veterans, most now in their late 90s, traveled to the beaches of Normandy in northern France on Tuesday. An annual ceremony was held to mark the 79th anniversary of D-Day. During the ceremony, 98-year-old veteran John Jack Foy described his experience in the Battle of the Bulge. The temperatures are about 10 below zero, a foot or so of snow on the ground. German artillery is blasting our position. The ground is heaving up and down with the violence of the explosions. Trees are splintering and crashing to the ground. The shrapnel is slicing into soldiers' flesh. Rifle and machine gun fire splits the air. In the early hours of June 6, 1944, more than 150,000 Allied troops set off from the south coast of England to Normandy. It began the military operation that ultimately led to the liberation of Western Europe from Nazi occupation. The Normandy American Cemetery is the final resting place for over 9,300 U.S. troops. My grandchildren sometimes ask, were you a hero in the war, Poppy? My answer is no, but I was in a company of heroes. Ask yourselves now, with heads bowed, from where, O oh God, came such men as these? The warriors of the greatest generation, a generation that is taking their final curtain calls of over 1,000 men a day, and soon we all will have left. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley also traveled to Normandy for the ceremony and greeted the veterans. I'm humbled to be here, always am, and humbled to see these veterans uh, and what they did for, for us. And what they did was give us uh, a gift, uh, a gift that can be given in some, in, 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 it's probably the most precious gift that can ever be given to anyone, which is the gift of freedom for all of us. And that's what that greatest generation did to us. In 2024, the annual D-Day commemorations are expected to attract world leaders to mark the 80th anniversary. Many veterans hope to make the trip again. Reporting by Allison Lee and TD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.